you, Maggie G, to, to be interviewed for the Book Blast podcast. Uh, Thank you for having exciting me. Very exciting that you're <laughs> doing this. And we're, sort of, we're celebrating your two latest publications with Fenton Press, Blood, and uh, Virginia Woolf in Manhattan. Uh, but of course you're an author of 15 books. So, uh, should we start from the beginning? You grew up in post-war Dorset and then moved to the Midlands. I mean, tell us a bit, before coming to London, what sort of been? Yes, I suppose my first memory is of beach, running on a beach. Um, that is probably significant since I've always been drawn back to the sea. Um, but b- books are there very early on in my memory because my mother um, loved reading, although she came from a she came from a she was one of seven children, working class family, no money for her to go to university, but she loved reading, and she read to me from the very beginning, and I loved it passionately. Unlike my elder brother, I did not want to learn to read because mummy did it. Why would I wanted to sort of close my eyes and listen to the story, and those stories were so real to me. I think partly because post-war Britain was quite bleak, mm. and modern children would just not understand how few things there were in houses. And th- therefore, books with these wonderful pictures and textures mm. and um, probably princesses and jewels and fairies and all of that. And, and monsters, which of course, in a sense, they're always there at home because you're frightened. You're always, to a certain extent, children are frightened or have nightmares. So the world of reading was amazing for me. So I do tend to remember, when I think about childhood, I remember um, Robert Louis Stevenson's Charles Gardner Verses. Um, I adored A. Milne. Those wonderful rhythmic poems, which I think really got rhythm in my bloodstream. That's why my writing is still very rhythmic. And I still love writing poems, because now we are six, and when we were very young. And Hans Christian Andersen, the most wonderful author the most magical author, the author whose glorious fables, I mean, every politician banged to rights in The Emperor With No Clothes, the fraudulence, the hypocrisy, and the fact that it's the audience who can't believe their own eyes and therefore don't tell us that the emperor has no clothes. Well, our politicians now have no clothes. Ugly duckling, the story of Hans Christian Andersen, who came from nowhere, um, and with nothing, and became really the greatest storyteller the world has ever known. Um, so that was my childhood. And of course running around, because in those days you ran around. And I was with, I had a brother, so I did boys things really. But you, you went, you ended up uh, at Somerville, Somerville in Oxford. I so, did, yeah. So all of that... Well, early reading enthusiasm, you had good teachers. So I had good teachers, good school, good plus schooling. my parents were two very bright people who had not had the education that they deserved. Um, my father did do an external degree, um, but he, he was a very bright man, and my mother was more verbal than him, in a way. Terribly funny woman. Um, and so they put all that, they projected onto their children their own desire for education. And these were times when you could be educated for free. Um, and so uh, we three children, two of us went to Oxford, one went to LSE. Um, and in a way, I, I felt there was too much pressure. My freedom was about writing and reading. I did not enjoy academic language. I always saw it was a kind of fiction and a sort of power game. 
um, and I long to be writing my own stuff. Um, so I was very happy. I mean, Oxford gave me confidence I'd never have had, I think. Honestly, coming from a village and without literary forebears, mm. um, where would I have got confidence? But somehow or other, getting this scholarship to Oxford was really important to me because it said, well, actually, you were bright, you know, mm. and that was very useful. So you can do something in the world, can't you? You can be something. You don't have to live in a village. Mm. Um, and um, I have to say I was very lucky in that my parents were totally supportive. And my father actually particularly was very ambitious for my writing. So I have to thank them for that. They were supportive. You do need that, don't That's you? Very, yes, because that actually later, I, uh, later on in our discussion, I asked about the, how supportive editors were, but of course it was encouraging, but you need that encouragement before you get into the industry. You so do, and you that... You really need to be... Yeah, Even the best life. editor is not going to yeah. give you what your parents yeah. never gave you, yeah. I think. And my father also said something wonderful to me, which was, it sounds silly, but it was just wonderful. Don't believe what anyone tells you. Brilliant. Yeah. Question. Brilliant. Yes. So Filter it. Think about yes, it. Yes, and that's so useful. Don't take it a because, you know, yeah, we're always... Right. And at the moment, just think how relevant that is with all the fake news we're getting. Um, oh, my goodness. Um, so you, so you ended up at Oxford and then you, you, then you came to London immediately. I mean, you, at one point you had various jobs. You were a cleaner, a hotel receptionist, distributed yeah. leaflets, then were a publisher's editor. What, what, I mean, what, was this in London, out of London? You came yes. to London in the 1980s? Um, that? Okay, it was slightly confused, but very useful. I had editorial training because I worked for two years as an editor for Elsevier. Ah, um, and that, and that was, was tremendously where? useful. It was in Oxford. In Oxford, yeah. Um, they so were publishing Oxford. encyclopedias. That's right. And I edited an international women's encyclopedia, but that wasn't the point. The point was that we actually rewrote other people's encyclopedias. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned to write 100-word entries, 300-word mm -hmm. entries, 500-word entries. So I learned to be succinct. Concise. Yeah, and that was tremendously is, useful. useful. I mean, any kind of writing training you do consistently is useful, like any kind of reading. And that was my training. And then I went off. This was a bit more bizarre. I wanted to get out of Oxford. Um, and so I went to... There was a... I went to Wolverhampton Polytechnic because they offered a research assistantship on something incredibly windy, the interrelationships of theory and literature, as if anyone could manage to plough through that in three years. Um, and uh, but what I did was read, because Oxford at that point was so conventional. Um, I hadn't read enough of contemporary literature. That was when I read Beckett, Nabokov, Virginia Woolf, uh, more of Virginia Woolf. I'd read her, but I hadn't read everything. Um, I think I said Vonnegut. Uh, so they were, in a way, early formative influences on Yes, because I spent three years reading them, and then I, I did a PhD on them. I wrote, I wrote a PhD on them. I didn't want to write the PhD, but I felt kind of, Committed partly because my doctor, my mother, when I, I was, a, my mother when I was a little girl said, "Wouldn't it be great to be a doctor, Margaret?" When Doctor McQueen, wonderful Doctor McQueen, the first woman doctor who ever came to the house, came in a green waisted suit, and she said after she went, "Perhaps you could be a doctor, Margaret." And then of course she got very excited when I was doing this research assistantship. Thought I would be, so I did it for my mother and also because it was the first one in the department. So I ended up with a doctorate 
which again is sort of useful because if you've got one you know they don't matter yeah. So I've got far too many it degrees helps. and things, well, but it means yeah. that so nobody can intimidate me by having them. But I know that writing isn't about that. It's about yeah. the connection between your heart, uh-huh. your brain and your hand. Mm. And having a story to tell and wanting to tell other people's stories. And, the, and also the, the observation, because in your novels, I mean, it's extraordinary the range of characters and subjects and the obviously very acute observer. You have to really... I mean, how how you you get under the skin of all these very different individuals? Yes, it's. Um, I think when people people say that about my books because I have characters of every color and race and religion. Um, I think it just reflects when people say that. I, I don't mean in your case, Georgia, but no, when no. critics say it, what they're actually noticing is the opposite. That in a lot of um, British mm-hmm. fiction, there is a very narrow range of characters. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at mine and thinking it's, it, you know, extraordinary, but actually, it's just the world as I know it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, I lived for 25 years in Kensal Rise, which is, we're, we're in Holland Park, yes. in your amazing well, flat yeah, full of yeah, art, yeah. and, yeah. and um, this has got a very mixed population, Kensal yes. Rise even more so. Um, and then Wolverhampton also was very mixed. Mm-hmm. and. You couldn't live there without seeing racism, um, um, without disliking it and finding it weird, basically. Um, because, of course, once you make friends with people, you don't really... These things become less important, less important than the things you share, I think. They're always... Well, also, it's a lack of... What I'm always puzzled by is just a lack of curiosity. It's yeah, I'm very curious. I mean, why... I mean, mm. But, yeah, I do love to try new things, and I think... That's a bit of a problem in some cases for my books because they're all different. The market prefers writers who produce the same books. Um, And I understand why, because then people know what they're getting. It's easier for critics because they can write the same review, slightly changed. Um, But why would I do that? Life is short. And all my books have been slightly different genres. Um, I think, in a way, you could say there are two... I mean, some of them are about the living world and it, the threats to it. So some of them are really focused on climate change. That makes them sound awfully dull. No, but no, no, but that's and no. again, I've done them in so different the ice, genres. The ice, the ice people, people yeah. where are the snows? Where are the snows? Um, yeah. But where are the snows is also a love story. Mm-hmm. But it's um, mm-hmm. light years. They're love stories, but they're also always about love for the natural mm-hmm. world. Um, and they're very often about... Um, non-human living things they are very important and when you think about it they were very important in Shakespeare because Mm -hmm. people lived among animals they lived among animals it's very odd this new canvas where we we are almost living in a monoculture because we've managed to exclude all the animals out of the house let's kill all the insects yeah Um, so there's that strand but then there's also a sort of satirical strand which is a bit different when you say why are we why do we tell stories yeah. i'm sure we're all different I, I think that we are all trying to understand yes. um and Makes in in that sense we're not so unlike scientists mm. but scientists try and understand via a series of rules whereas we're looking at particular cases and the marvelous garden of particular cases and we are trying to show those in detail and by looking at them perhaps we'll understand them 
Um, usually also we're trying to understand things about our own lives that we haven't fully mm -hmm. understood. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the people why, the reason why readers love and need stories is because they also need to understand. We need to make sense of the chaos of our lives. Mm -hmm. And because all lives have a lot of happenstance in them, because mm -hmm. our bodies are frail mm -hmm. and break and die, we want to understand things as not totally pointless. Mm -hmm. We want some pattern. And I think storytellers, yes. even when you're telling a sad a story, reassurance in a way, yeah. even when the story is yeah. sad, if it has a shape, it's bearable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but to go back to what we were saying about satire, I mean, which you excel at it, because particularly for women, a, a way to get certain messages across through satire. So you're kind of getting quite serious, perhaps even quite painful stuff across, but in a sort of light way, so that... I take your point, you, um, uh, I take your point, but I've never mm. known what the message of the book would be before I wrote it. Mm. And as soon as you know that too much, I think right. that's when it turns into preaching. I, um, yes, so I am yes, always, yeah, yeah. I'm always writing about yeah. something I really genuinely want to understand. So it's usually mm -hmm. something I'm ambivalent about. Right. And I am particularly careful not to show characters who share what might be my own point of view yeah. as right. Okay. So I tend to often satirise the characters who are most like me, as I do with through Vanessa Henman, who is like um. a sort of... Very oh, caricatural yeah, version. In, in my cleaner. In my cleaner. And then um, also my driver. And in yeah. my driver, it's sequel. Um, oh, yes, one relates. Uh, my one writer figures, I'm it. always laughing at yeah. and with. I mean, the point is, I'm laughing at myself. Yeah. You know, I think I make people uneasy by the, the, the fun in my books, but they have well, to understand. is terribly important. They have to understand that mm. I see myself as comic too. We are all comic creatures because. You know, there is that combination of... There is a tragic element to the fact that we all die. But on the other hand, things are... Because things are absurd, and because there is all this random beauty all around us and acts of kindness, it's comedy in a sense. And you hope, I think, to move towards comedy as you move through your life rather than tragedy. And Shakespeare is the model for all, all British writers, but he ended with comedy. And that's really what I think I'm doing. Um, although I think I've written a very strange kind of comedy with blood because I am dealing with something that is absolutely mm. tragic yes, and right. frightening, but I am doing it to make it bearable through a character who I gather is very funny from the fact that even critics who haven't liked the book very much have said laugh out loud or hilarious. I know she's funny. She made me laugh she's as I tragic, wrote it. She's a very tragic, funny, underneath very sweet it, character. Underneath it, yeah. she is in a way a tragic character. Um, but she, but she also, is also a very brave character because she is surviving yes. a terrible family and well, she's abusive actually an abusive, abusive father um, who's been abusive to all, ag aggressive and abusive to all his children, mm -hmm. um, a mother who is alcoholic and um, indifferent and bullied though, and indifferent, bullied. but who may be complicit with the father, mm -hmm. we don't really know. But somehow, what Monica Ludd the hero of my new novel says is, I get up every morning and try not to be a maniac. And that's well, a great she, achievement. She, she is what you were saying about the self-deprecating, and that is a huge uh, quality, as I, I, I appreciate as in pe certain people as they get older, is the ability to laugh at self. That's it's true. Terribly She's also... She, that's what makes her so endearing, because she kind of is able to step back and 
make jokes about. She's this rather yes. overwhelmingly tall, her large size, and jokes about her big breasts. And yeah, so she and loves her big breasts. She loves her big breasts. She loves she being tall. And I enjoyed being tall. She's great fun. Did you enjoy being oh, yes. large and oh, sexy? Yes, it was sort of great. Valkyrie figure. Oh, yes, Very I loved Valkyrian. it. I loved it. This is the thing. But, yeah. but I, Virginia Woolf makes a character in between the acts mm. talk about our unacted selves and says mm. that's what, that's what um, drama allows us allows the audience mm. to live. Our, and I think writers live their unacted lives, their unacted selves, through the books that they write. Mm. And the other important thing about Monica is that she actually achieves good things in the world. She doesn't yes. just get up and try yeah. not to be well, a she's maniac. Deputy head, she's deputy, deputy head of a school, exactly. and she doesn't listen to any of the bullshit. She's not interested in the bureaucracy, mm. but she really cares about the children with the most difficulties and they of course remind her of herself and she is able to handle the violence whereas perhaps somebody else might be absolutely freaked out by that because i thought because and that is in a that gas that really cliche of turning negatives into positives but in a way it is that it's how you turn negatives into a positive and she her turns experience her. is constructive and she's helpful to the children well that's extraordinary she also had a very important book in the book in the point in the book uses her strength and her courage yes. in a way that makes it clear that this body, this big body, is not ridiculous, yeah. no. but big, strong bodies can be very helpful to women in the era yeah. of Me Too. Mm -hmm. It can be helpful mm -hmm. to be big and strong, and some of Harvey Weinstein's victims might not have been victims if they'd been bigger they and stronger. Been frail, fragile. I, I know we have to yeah. wait for the court case, but, uh, no, but still, it's not it's looking good, Harvey. Very true. No. <laughs> looking, say, between blood and uh, my cleaner, it's a different kind of violence because there's, in my cleaner, there's more, I would say, there's almost more psychological violence in a way, or anxiety or hang ups. Other is quite abusive. Oh, the She's elderly very, mother. Vanessa is very abusive to that, so the controlling... Oh, I see the, Vanessa herself. The, yeah, she is, oddly, and wonder to what extent... Well, she's been neglectful, she's I think been, it's more that. Well, she's quite... But, you know, I, I personally found there was something quite disturbing about her level of control. There's something very narcissistic about her. The way oh, she's she very narcissistic. always sees she's wrong. Yes, we always see and that Trevor. From it. Trevor is in fact a hero. This mm. is the ex-husband who shows nothing but, but tragic. love and practical help. Ah, but he may it. come into his own in the next book. I see. I haven't read my and, mind. And um, ah, yes, I've got to and, and Justin may escape in the next mm. book, mm. and all sorts of things may ah, happen. Yes. And she may learn. Mm. And I, I mean, I think you know, you, you have a choice as a writer. You can redeem yes. your characters or condemn Which them. Is lovely. And some of them can only be condemned. But I bring lots of them back. Mm -hmm. um, but the murderer from the White family comes back as a, a man with a newsagent, a UKIP newsagent really owner. How you get under the skin and inside the heads of your characters is, is really it's very... Well, I live them. to do that. I, 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 I mean, this is Like an actress, you mean you become them almost. This is the thing. Obviously, I am not Monica. Anyone who would think that was ridiculous. Yeah, I, I'm not you, Monica, yeah. and I'm kind of socially sort of worried about it. Monica has no social sensitivity at all. Right. Okay. Um, so it's all the opposite. I, I wish I could barrel into a room like Monica, as I've said before. <laughs> but um, inside me is someone who would like to be Monica. So although I am not Monica, Monica is part of me, an unacted part of me. Right. And all of these characters I really think mm. I really think to be an interesting writer 
you have to let all these parts of yourself out of the bag. Even with the villains, yeah. none of oh, us of are 100% angelic. We just oh, have to not. find the cruelty in us. That and then we can put that into something. Much better to put it in a book Absolutely. than act it. And because you can yeah. both put it in a book and then you can sort of slightly punish it. Yeah. <laughs> or you yeah, can show how it goes wrong. Um, so, yeah, they, if you don't live them and feel that you are them when you're writing them, yeah. I don't think it works. And, of course, empathy is partly about living other people um, and that is partly why I founded the empathy uh, co-founded with Bambu Soyinka Professor Bambu Soyinka so, yes. the empathy and writing group at Bar so Spa. This is at Bar Spa so how so you've been teaching at Bar Spa creative writing for how long uh, seven years I think six years. six, six years. Right. years wonderful what motivated you founding the empathy and writing cross-disciplinary research group I I have always been very interested in the notion of empathy. Mm -hmm. Um, I love Franz de Waals. uh, Mm -hmm. Is it Franz de Waals? It's not Fritz de Waals. Yeah, it's Franz de Waals' work. He is a very interesting biologist who writes about empathy in non-human animals and animals. Mm -hmm. Um, I've written about writing about difference, meaning, and always saying, you know, I've written essays and given talks about it. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed to me empathy, there was a particular paper... Uh, there's a particular study on empathy, uh, the, on how empathy is increased in readers who read literary fiction. Oh, really? um, this was very interesting. So oh, really? the, r- readers who had read, for example, um, s- novels that had a first-person character of colour um, then became less prejudiced, less... Um, so this was very interesting. So empathy and fiction... And I thought, okay, there's something interesting here, but I don't want it just to be for writers, although there's lots of wonderful writers here. So I made it cross-disciplinary. And my rule was, to begin with, that people would talk about how they used empathy in their profession. And it had to be in conversational language. We really wanted to know, in other words. So it wasn't sort of... It was important that we weren't showing off. We were actually talking to each other, truthfully. But there's also limits of empathy. So I got a medical doctor to come and talk about the limits of empathy mm. in medical practice. Because if you're a surgeon, you I mean, I had an over-empathic dentist once, and as he drilled, he'd be wincing. Or putting oh, in a, yes, you know, that's he was not, no, that, terribly that, that kind and sweet. He talked to me about watercolours when I couldn't really respond. He was too yeah. empathic. It was too hard for him, you know. Yeah, yeah. You just want, at certain yes. points, you want you someone who just acts. And there is a difference between empathy and sympathy, of course. Nobody well, wants yes. somebody saying, no. ah. Yeah. No, you don't want Pity that. Yeah, you want somebody who's sort of walking alongside and alongside, definitely not, not bending over saying, so sorry, does the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It's a very successful, just had a first conference and we just got the website up. Oh, that would be interesting. Um, um, so coming back to when you, so you first came to London in the 80s, is that right? And you were... Uh, 1979. Oh, in 79. So, and then you were, in 83, you were one. Grand that was Grand my Grand. That was hotel Grand. handing out Yeah, that was and, when you were... That was, yes. And then, uh, but then you were writing. So you were really... You had this huge burning desire to write. I mean, it's quite a lonely oh, yeah. occupation, so it wasn't... Yes. You did it come what may. It was what I were, always wanted to do, and I hadn't gone through those four years of doing literary study to end up an academic I mm. knew I didn't want to do that yeah, I wanted okay. to be a writer yeah. I always wanted to be a writer um, I don't know I mean but you know 
Looking back at your biography, looking at your bio, you tend to tidy it up. How do I know if I hadn't got accepted by a publisher, would I have gone on? So, because what happened, you, you were, it, was it that you were featured in Grant, you joined, a, you did a short story contest? I mean, how oh, did you no, break no, no. in? There, it's always interesting, um, the break-in point. Yeah, the break-in point is, the break -in point is interesting. Important. I could have broken in probably four years earlier if I hadn't been so well, shy. But no, really, well, I wrote the novel when I was 25. Right. I didn't publish, yeah, seven years. I didn't publish when I was 32. So that um, was the novel, so it was your first or second novel? It was the second novel that I wrote. Right, okay. Um, but it was the novel I'd written when I was 25 that I published right. at 32. Okay. But you see, I can't yeah. explain okay. how no, on the outside of lit literary life I was. Yeah. So I just, I... Um, London then, I was very, oh, the cliques. Well, no, you see an agent, up now. Patrick Seal... I had Patrick an agency, Seale. yes. But and he, but it's because of him that I'm in publishing. Oh, well, there you go, the wonderful <gasps> Patrick Seal. He kept saying, come to London. I was too shy to go to London. I was in Wolverhampton. I really was too shy. Yeah. Um, and, um, yes, yeah, so a thrilling message that came back was, she is a real writer. Yes. And that was so wonderful and so encouraging. So I held on to that like a... Now that is you know, very interesting because that a touchstone. I needed a touchstone. What is a real writer? It's just that you have it rather than you learn it because yes. this goes into really then doing. Everyone is doing creative writing now. Everyone. Who come on the creative writing courses, of course, who are real writers. So you and can stop. You. It's just an instinct. You thing. just, you just know they are real writers, yeah. but they they need encouragement. And remember, right. it took seven years for me not coming from the right place. A lot of these writers mm. do not come from the right place either. Yeah. So what creative writing courses do right. is hopefully help them not to have to wait seven years, seven years or the rest of their life. So how did you, so you were in Wolverhampton, so Patrick was just encouraging? Yes, or, yeah, he was. Um, read the novel, well he wanted to represent me. Um, yeah. But I just couldn't grasp the, you know, I, I couldn't do it. And I, so, what was the novel? Um, Dying in other words. Dying it, in other And it did words. become my first published novel. Um, so then, Granter came after that. Oh yeah. So yeah, Granter. Yeah. So then, you were selected as Granter twenty best of young British novelists in nineteen eighty-three. So the yes. novel came out what in 80, 81. 81, yeah. 81. Right. Um, Eighty-two, I think, was mm -hmm. the Granter, and then, and I, I mean, I got a lot of coverage. I mean, probably because I was young and. And attractive. that was helpful, helpful. Uh, oh, very helpful. Yeah. Any encouragement. Valentine Cunningham gave it a rave in The Observer. Who is the Hughes, who is a wonderful novel writer? And of course now I've got Ted Hughes, because he also encouraged me, actually, that's another story. Um, but there was a wonderful Hughes novelist. The Little Book was his last book when he was dying. But anyway, we'll I, I found out that he had told Harvester Press, who were just starting a small okay. literary list, okay. that I might have a novel in the drawer. And indeed, I did. And I sent it. They sent it, well, they did letters they didn't realise. But, you know, we hear you might have a novel somewhere ready for <laughs> publication. If you send it to us, we might be able to find the statue in the stone, which, of course, is wonderfully patronising, isn't it? Um, because, actually, they didn't do any editing. Um, I sent it, forgot all about it, just thought it was one of those things. And six months later, I got this letter saying, we'd like to publish it. Advance of £500. So again, it was random, do you see? Mm. But I believe that this man had recommended me. Mm. I didn't know him. 
He's read it. Yeah, that's often word of mouth is often how. Yeah. Because much it's sort of more. So in other words, I didn't have the agent. I wasn't on social media, Mm -hmm. and the frightening thing is that you can fall outside. Oh, very much so. Oh, I have seen Um, that terribly. And writers are shy people. Imagine Samuel Beckett. I think he only did one interview in his life. He would have hated the new. I mean, you know, I am a realist. I will do what I need to do. And I've learned not to be Mm. shy because shyness is just a form of vanity anyway. Well, an agonised form of vanity. It's also human. um, It's human. human. It's it's also about, you know, my family never entertained. It's very difficult. I think social media is very difficult for writers because Twitter is both a place where most writers are and where you find... You find a lot of things you didn't know right. were going on. Yes. The writers do support each other. Yes. Um, but it also forces you to be two things. Um, mm-hmm. One is to write rather badly because you're writing very... I mean, that could be a form of... If you're, for example, describing a photograph, that could be beautiful or a challenge yes. or a, a very short poem. But there's a lot of things that are not that. that are, mm. you, and you are expected to around publication, you are expected to to plug yourself. And actually, frankly, it's very boring. People are not really interested in... They they like little bits of funny things that have happened or gone wrong. But if you look at the difference between something that is actually a straight plug Mm -hmm. and something that is about the world, then obviously people, for good reasons, don't really like it. So you do it and... You see that people have, you know, you see there's lots of impressions perhaps, but people don't reply because they don't care and they don't believe it. And it's it's a sort of folly and it does, it's very distracting. You know, yes, well, that's the you thing. actually have to switch off. It? I mean, do you have, are you quite disciplined? You, you check it occasionally, yeah. the rest of the time, get off it. And then I, you're this writing like Zadie Smith, I believe, can do quite right, like a lot of writers actually, they just switch off completely. Yeah, I am um, much better mm-hmm. writing away from my phone away right. from yeah. the computer actually I mean I like although I've got a lovely study I now which is great but I often write either the house on the beach really? um, or in, the, in a cafe in so longhand yeah. in, in notebooks um, yeah, and I still and do, then you I still do early oh, stuff right. that way um, but I think what I've discovered around publication you have to be on Twitter it's very bad for you and it's very jitter making you also get over excited about yourself you can't help it and you, you have to remember very firmly that this is a very tiny selection of people who are reflecting you back um, and you, you do have to remember and that. not to take it too seriously you back do. to self-deprecation but also on the other hand you do have to not be on the back foot because for example yeah. like the, the spectator who did a not very nice review as they always do of me um, oh and they tweeted it very early before anybody else they just want to get it out there um, that was quite funny because then the Guardian was tweeted. Was this a blood? And, what yeah, was it? this was so a blood. So what did they not? Oh, but the spectator brought it. What did they oh, not like they about just, it? Oh, dear, well, they just. you know, they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. They said, "I can't see what she's doing." They did at least really? quote Lyndall Gordon, um, saying other com- completely different things. But oh, they said it was. I mean, Monica, of course, is very frank, but you do have to sort of see what's going on, mm-hmm. don't you? Um, so they got that out. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what I think. I think. Facebook I found fatal because mm-hmm. people are really much franker about their lives on Facebook. So I was well, drawn in, yeah. drawn in, right. and I, I realised don't be on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And Twitter I can more keep it to mm-hmm. time. Um, my daughter 
Rose Rangji, who also writes, mm -hmm. has told me I'm making a great mistake in cross-posting from Twitter to Facebook. Because that means I'm not really on Facebook. Oh, so yeah, I am an autistic presence on Facebook because I never respond to anybody. But I appear to be posting, so I really should take oh, it down. I th I, well, perhaps, but I think Facebook is, a, but Facebook is tricky. It's a good channel for promotion. But I think privacy now is completely different to what it used to be even 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah. The whole notion of privacy is completely different. So, but you choose, but when you write a memoir, your memoir, you choose all the same. It's a selection. It's very selective. It's very selective. The American critic Elaine Showalter came up with a very interesting term, mm -hmm. which she applied, I think, to me and Hilary Mantel. And it was skeptical realist. I like skeptical that realist. because I am a realist in that I like to show the real detail of people's lives, but it's also always slightly tweaked. Yeah. There is, you know, the world of blood is not exactly oh, the UK. It's certainly not Thanet, which is a rather gentle place, but it is a world where terrorism has gone further, where people have become angrier. So I'm doing the real world, but yeah. in a different way. Um, I, I, I got experimental for my first book, and I thought, oh God, doom. Though I would never use it. I am modernist. I'm not postmodern. Yeah. I'm modernist because I believe in a whole meaning, which is all that modernist means, really. All it was was saying that the work of art has its whole meaning and is not just a mirror reflecting life. Yeah. So I'm a modernist in that sense, no other sense. Um, but these are my heroes. I just think if I was to go and sort of go to a reading group and say I'm a modernist writer, they would just be scared. And book groups are great because they read with their hearts and their heads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which are your personal favourites of your 15 books? And then mm. which are, for example, the favourites that reading groups love? Um, the ones question. that, of course, it partly depends what happens to the book. So if, yeah. for example, with an Orange Prize shortlist of books, which you, that... Yeah. So which, they, which was, so tell us, and which that was shortlisted was, for the Orange Prize and which for the international okay. category? That was the... Um, Oh no, they were both the it's white, the white family. family. The white family, the white family, a great yeah. book. Yes. And then it's it's just a knock-on effect, though, mm -hmm. isn't it? You know, you get one, and then you get others. I mean, I'm very skeptical about. I wouldn't judge any of my books by how they were received. Mm. I think there's so much chance in it. Well, yes, honestly. But, but but then the readers afterwards. That's the nice. The critics are one thing, but the readers, what the readers go for. Do you know what though? Which? I think critics are quite sheep-like, really, because um, the white family happened to come out and get sh shortlisted for the Orange Prize before the reviews. And then the reviewers oh. were reading it with that big ah, approval, big approval on it. And were. so they all loved it, I think. But it is extremely clever. I mean, the writer who I adored, of course, who did vast panoramic, was Dickens. Oh, I loved Dickens. The way he but, would take yeah. families and oddball, and he, and so that, the White family was a sort of, it's panoramic and the dysfunction. I mean, it's, it's a state it's of a Britain very novel. Clever. Definitely a state um, of Britain novel. A, absolutely. So, um, and also it leads to the part now, why is there still actually now such reticence on the part of the dominant quote-unquote white literary establishment to address through literature the tensions of race and class in contemporary British society? Because... Mm. Um, I think that, I mean, a lot of things changed after the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Um, and the inquiry that followed, and the idea of institutional racism did 
for the first time, I think, really entered British society thanks to that inquiry. But I wrote The White Family um, before that inquiry. I wrote it shortly after the murder. It was inspired by the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just too early. It took it seven years. It took seven years to get published. That book was turned down by every mainstream publisher in London. Good lord! Yeah, sixteen. Really? Oh yeah, sixteen or seventeen publishers. And I just went. I, that was pretty devastating, actually. Um, and well, I. What was it? They couldn't get. They couldn't. Well, it was so funny if you looked at the things they said. Yeah. Too dark came up very often. Well, yeah, yeah, it's got black characters in it. Um, and what period was this? Was this? Uh, this I wrote it in '95. Ah, well, this is actually when I was selling as an agent, Empire Windrush. Yes. Got turned around, turned down. Uh, that was rejected by a slew of publishers. It was edited by Mikachi Wambu, who's editor of The Voice newspaper. Um, a editor at Bloomsbury said, uh, he said to me, oh, blacks don't read. Oh, Who's going to buy the book? Unbelievable. Which had, had me just on the floor. Mm. And, and it was, of course, wonderful. Mike Petty had gone out to completely see it. Mm. Well, he did it. But oh, yeah, yes, Mike Petty. Yeah, yeah, he was wonderful. He gave me a yeah, clever man. He's an agent. And writer. Um, mm. So that's interesting. So it was that kind of period. I yeah, think it was. Maybe the mindset is a bit less, but... The, that, so that I went doesn't surprise me. You were dealing with a sub that, yes. that they didn't want to. And that was what was so wonderful about Saki. Mm. And it was yeah. another writer, Maurice Fahey, Turkish. Oh, yeah, sure. And also Maigusub was fantastic. Oh, Maigusub. It was fantastic. her who loved that it novel. Was her who, yeah, she was and the relief. The, yeah. I, I think yeah. the happiest moment in my whole <laughs> life as a writer was when Maigusub phoned. Really? This book that had been turned down by everybody. Oh. Seven years. And I'd written another book in the meanwhile. The Ice People, mm. um, for another publisher who'd gone bust. I mean, my life as a writer has been extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, but this, you know, this is one of the reasons Makes why tough. I stopped agenting. I'm trying to sell some feminist noir that I want to translate. Well, so the publisher doesn't, they, they're like, but, and I'm like, yeah, but this is a t- riff. It's an angry French granny killing Nazis who tried to rape her. It's fantastic. It's hysterical. Yeah, it sounds great. It's feminist noir. Nobody's done that yet. Yeah, well, that's I've tried. Probably in a way. I think you that's what Monica I mean? is feminist noir. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of it. It's, it's, it's coming. It's got a big, well, you're feminist noir, actually, yeah. well, in a way. Oh, blood, it is. Is totally blood is totally feminist noir. Totally so the White Family... So the White same. Family, um, HarperCollins, it was the second book in a two-book deal, and they rejected it. And then oh. everybody in London turned it down. Um, and then I did The Ice People for Richard Cohen books. I thought, I've got to write myself out of trouble. I got fantastic reviews. Richard Cohen books went bust on the day of publication. So the publication party was the wake. And they just got enough money from the books to pay the staff wages. Mm. Um, then Metro Books bought it, did it as paperback, sold about 35,000, the biggest sale I've ever had. Fantastic. And they went bust. Oh my God. So I didn't get the money for that. Uh, I mean, it was hilarious. And then my, yeah, so. but I just kept going. Yeah, and you then Morris M- 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 Fahey always really believed in the White Family and thought it was a wonderful book. He sent it to my Soup and she phoned up at half past four one day, a beautiful day, and said, Yes, I, I love this book and I think we want to publish it. Best, such a wonderful day. I walked down towards Kentral Rise High Street and there was the sun was red on the building at the end and I just thought, Ah, life is opening up again. You know, it's blossoming. Because mm. I don't know that I could have gone and written another novel. You, you know, it's hard. Yeah, it's well, really hard without a publisher and at that stage without an agent. 
Christ, um, no, you've but, you got your self, good, good, resilient self, that early encouragement from the get-go, mm. I think that, because it is, I've seen writers fall, they just can't they do. hack it. They stop. They can't it's hack too awful. Well, drink. Well, it's too hurtful. And after a it's bit, I, the other person who always encouraged me was Nick, because after, I think, about the 15th rejection or something, I said, well, look, this, they've got to be right. The book can't be any good. And he said, I still think it's your best book. Mm. Um, and I got really annoyed with him. I said, it's no good, that's not love. You know, t telling me it's good when it isn't. But it turned out it probably was mm -hmm. good. I mean, you know, it probably was. But it doesn't make it that much better yeah. that it got the raves and everything because I feel sceptical. I am yeah. so sceptical. You can see why I'm sceptical about publishing and prizes. I'm very sceptical. You know, people. independent publishing. And you really do need a readers. You need reader response. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I did learn from reader response on this book, actually. I realised that the book was, at first, in its very first version, it was bleaker than I meant it to be. And I realised that you have to make your, your characters do have to be loved. And mm -hmm. so I, I really expanded um, the sense that she loved her students. Mm -hmm. that she, and I, I also showed that in a way she loved her father. First kind of metaphor, I'm really trying to say mm -hmm. we need law. And in a way, Ginger, for, yeah. he gives, helps give structure yeah. to her life. Yes, he he helps her to stop drinking. He does protect her from the consequences of her actions. Ginger is an interesting character, actually, actions. how you develop the men in your book, because quite a lot of the men are not too... Well, he's corrupt. Great, but they're redeeming. He's corrupt, but he's clever. He but does he's, got, he's not completely bad just because no, he's corrupt. No, not at all. That's what's good. And there's it's a very important is moment. It's associated with badness, and it's not. Sometimes it's, it's more subtle than that. There's a very important moment when there's been some sex between them, a sexual yeah, act between yeah, them, yeah. and he yeah. kisses her, mm. and she's expecting he might headbutt her or something yeah. like that. <laughs> and it's, it, there is a moment of when she just thinks, oh, you know, and there's a possibility of friendship between them. They can laugh together. Um, they can dance together and so there is something to work on but nobody gets the hundred percent perfect happy ending. and you know the country can't have that kind of happy yeah. ending um, but on the other <laughs> hand the it would help if we yeah. didn't get rid of all the peace stations and it would help if we could be more rational about a lot of things and well, we could love each other more back to the racism how somehow is was it a glimmer of hope we were saying you were talking about the post Lawrence and institutionalised racism, suddenly there was an understanding and recognition that this is, this is bad and this really exists. It really I mean, was are we helpful. Going, does one feel sometimes as though one is almost going backwards or not? Or is um, there something that had, had to come well, out? Well, it's in every society. I always mm. want to be aware of thinking Britain is more racist than other Oh, no, every, each society is. Because, it, you know, racism, yeah. classism, it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and in, in a way, a it's just way. people mm. struggling to understand or defend themselves. Um, but is it not also not wanting to look at themselves? I, I always you, I feel mean, it's you know, a projection of fear, really. It's not wanting to look at your own fear of just dumping it on someone else. Also, I think it's very interesting. Really, Brexit, it seems to me, mm -hmm. not for everybody. Everyone has different reasons, those who want Brexit. They have very different reasons, so I, I don't want to simplify but I do think that fear of the other, mm -hmm. fear of foreigners, is very strong in this island race mm -hmm. still. Yeah. And yeah. when you have these vast gaps between rich and poor, mm -hmm. and that really has increased so much since the 50s when I grew up, yeah. when you really didn't see, I mean, I'd never seen a very rich person. Mm -hmm. And 
we didn't see so many people on the streets. We didn't see homelessness and we had no idea about wealth. I've never seen what you would call a middle class home. So these vast gaps between people leave the people at the bottom trying to understand what's happened to them. And it's very easy to spin to them a story foreigners have taken it because they see that something has changed since they were little and they see it's a more plural society and they think it's the fault of that plural society. It isn't. It's the fault of, you know, big But exactly, what I will money. say also, the, the, the sort of shift in the whole value system, because there was, there's always obviously been class and money and all that inequalities, but somehow now the core criteria is all based on worth and money. And I mean, even, even what I call checkbook culture, and how much is it yeah, worth? Yeah, I mean, I mean I has think... that not changed? The use of it has always been that, but is this sort of onset of advanced capitalism, if you like, I think corporations. I, I always mean, see it that, as late capitalism. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also um, part of that. Late capitalism, and late capitalism prefers to simplify, and therefore it yeah. prefers to sell a lot of one product, mm. the bestseller, yeah. rather than offering a range of choices. Mm. And which, of course, is, to offer a range of choices is a way of respecting mm. literature mm. and respecting the variety of what people might want. Mm. But if you can sell a fable that these are the good ones, there's three of them, it's much easier to sell and market. Um, however, I think in my work, what interests me is where power lies. Um, trying to understand one of the things that interests me is where power lies and who is being deprived of it. What stories are being told and who those stories benefit. And when we start thinking about rich and poor and money being the only thing that's valued, I think it's also a kind of mistake because I think when you right. come to people's real lives, real people's real lives, yeah, yeah. family is what matters to them. Yeah. Whether their children are happy that day, or, you know, whether the meal they cooked went well, yeah, yeah. whether their sister was nice to them, mm. you know. Mm. These are the, what really matters to people. And you have to get some of that into your books. Um, and I try and get that love into my books. I try mm. and get the fact that people do love well, each other, get hurt by each other. Well, Virgi therefore, now coming to Virginia Woolf in mm. Manhattan, which we haven't talked about as mm. much, um, that is interesting also because it's here and in America and in Istanbul. Yeah. So you're, you take in, if not other places. Yes. And then also the whole Virginia Woolf mystique, if you like, is addressed in a very yes. humorous way. Yes. I, and then there's yeah. the whole mother-daughter relationships. So, I don't know, can we look at those three chunks, if you like, first of all? Yes. Um, anyway. Sure, absolutely. The world, yes. Um, <laughs> well, as a writer, you have to think internationally because you have to read internationally. Mm. Um, and some of the best times in your writer's life are when you are meeting Turkish, Egyptian writers, scholars, um, German, you know, these are the really exciting moments because we are all linked by the same desire to tell stories. We all have the same problems with publishers and critics. We all read. And families. And, and families. And, and so writers, these, and you know, we do think internationally yeah. because mm -hmm. that's where our citizenship is. I, you know, in mm -hmm. that way, we're citizens of the world. With this book, um, Virginia Woolf in Manhattan, I did want to look at what Virginia Woolf might think if she came back to life. What she'd think of the book trade. What she'd think of, you, you know, the way the bookstores in Manhattan are closing fun. down what yeah. she would think of everybody being hooked up to machines. But I also <laughs> wanted to give her a happier life. Yeah. I thought that would be great fun. 
um, because really the fact of her life could have been different. She might not have had her mother die at that age. She might not have had those abusive half-brothers. Um, so I thought I'd give her a life where you know, she was in the real Virginia Woolf, was very witty, very funny. When she wasn't depressed, she was a tremendous enjoyer of the sensory things in life, I think. So I wanted to f find and throw the light on those sides, mm -hmm. um, but also give her some things she hadn't had. And I also thought that choice of killing herself, she got to 59 without doing it. Maybe if that war hadn't been there, maybe if she hadn't guessed that she and Leonard, and they were on the Gestapo's list of the first people to be rounded up when they came to the UK. Um, maybe if those things hadn't come together. And she was also terribly afraid that her last book was no good. This is the worst thing to think about. Because even Leonard didn't really think it was very good between the acts. It's a work of staggering genius. But the, all those things came together. And she killed herself. But I think she might not have done. So I'm doing a thought experiment where she goes on living. And she has uh, two lovers in Turkey. Um, and she also inspires... I love the fact that she ends up in Turkey. Yes, well, Istanbul, they love her there, and she's very important there to women. Um, and so I bring her together at the end with also with young women and young men readers who love her. They love her in Turkish universities. Um, and I talk about freedom, and I talk about a room of one's own. So it's a love letter for me to Virginia Woolf. Um, and all, it is also about mothers and daughters. Well, you see, that's, um, yes, now that side of it. And how about the neglectful mother. Yeah, ah, my, my daughter. And all your daughter, and then also she's oh, a yes. writer now. I mean, how does that, yes. the, the, how, how, well, the, the personal informing that Okay, so my fiction. daughter was the first person to read it because I wanted her to okay Gerda. <laughs> yeah. Because Gerda, I mean, Gerda, my relationship with Rose is nothing like the relationship like between Gerda and that. Angela. No, really. Uh, but I use well, not, lots of not, I lots of Rose's best lines mm -hmm. are in the book because she's you know we've always messaged each other a lot and we've always had a verbal very verbal relationship even when she's you know she's on her way home and she so we're having jokes we, we, I mean yesterday we probably messaged each other about ten times although we also saw each other mm -hmm. um, so Gerda is also the brave girl from Hans Andersen's The Snow Queen. The girl who goes out around the world to save the little boy. So she's not the princess from the fairy stories. She is the active, brave girl um, who, motivated by love for a boy, she goes around the world and she finds him and her tears, her warm tears, fall on his... <coughs> fall on little Kay and the um, splinter of ice melts and they walk out together into the world, into perpetual summer. So it's the archetypal, wonderful, happy ending. Mm -hmm. And so Gerda is my hero. And um, if the elements of Gerda in Rosa are, I love all of Rosa, but I love the Gerda in Rosa. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yes, it was sort of partly a love letter to my daughter, I think, as well as to Virginia Woolf. Mm -hmm. Although, of course, there is a terrible mother in it, but... I'm sort of saying, really, how many writers have been mothers? It's often been a choice that writers have not been able to make, whereas male writers have been able to have vast families because, you know, they're brought up by...
And the women who have managed to have children have often had servants, you know, um, and probably not liked having them and not wanted to have them, um, but had them. Anyway, that's another. Thinking about the whole money, making a living, mm. how has your work for the Society of Authors Management Committee, the Government's Public Lending Rights Committee, and the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society Championing Authors' Rights to Fair Pay affected you? And changed your views on the life, writing life. I think and I always had. I, mean, I always changed. had views on the writing life, and they encouraged me to go and work for those mm -hmm. organisations. Yeah. You volunteered for. I mean, all mm. the first ones were voluntary. Mm. ALCS is a mm. is a paid yeah. post, but um, we just need our organisations. They yeah. help you when the chips are really down. Mm. The Society of Authors um, helped me when HarperCollins broke their contract. Um, I also had a grant from the Society of Authors when I got very bad with repetitive strain injury and couldn't write for about a year. Um, they also there's a Freemasonry of writers, and these organisations they we lobby for copyright. We make sure that um, copyright doesn't get forgotten with mm -hmm. what's happening at the moment with the internet that. and yeah, coming yeah, out yeah. of Europe. You know, mm -hmm. we have to make sure that copyright stays strong. Yep. Yep. We have yep. to make sure we're not pirated. We are pirated all the time. I probably get offered mm -hmm. three or four versions of pirate versions mm -hmm. of Rosa's book. Even now, you know, a few years after it came out, every day. Um, and, you know, writers need to be able to make a living like uh, musicians do. But over the last 20 years, um, authors' writings have dropped, dropped I, I think, yeah. by over a half. About 10,000 um, 10, a year, the average. The average, and, and that is that is really not, uh, distorted by the very, very high earners at the top. And I think if you look at the median earnings, it's if you look at the, you know, what most people earn, and they're also the number of actual professional writers, meaning professional, very narrowly defined as writers who only write, is vanishingly small compared to what it was 20 years ago. I mean, you know, why are so many quite well-known writers teaching in universities well, now? Everyone now is... You know, from Philip yep. Hensher to Tess Hadley mm -hmm. to... Um, yeah. you, you know, they're... Because your grant are 20. Well I mean, done. a lot of them, how many are still around in the writing life or teaching or writing well, something else? Um, some of them died, of course. Well, that, oh yes, well, that you have to not die. <laughs> As a writer, good <laughs> advice, don't <laughs> die. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, well, how many of them are still around? Some of them have done so well. So yeah. it was fun to be in that group. Yeah. And Will Boyd, for example. Yeah. Um, Martin Ames, Julian Barnes, Rose Tremaine, Pat they're Barker. All, so they're all doing and there weren't many well. women. Yeah. Um, I think one of the women has died. Yeah. One of them doesn't write much anymore. But some of us are still going. Good. So that now blood. Uh, what are you working on now? Is it that are we are, are we waiting to see what happens? Well, at the moment, I'm in that odd fuzz of publication. Yeah, well, so of you know, when, oh, when you're actually but, being published, it's not a very creative time. But no. I am writing. But, I'm writing about. Line, I'm writing about Neanderthals. Um, oh, it's oh. turned into a kind of fairy story. I've been researching it for oh, five years, oh, wow. um, including going to Gibraltar and going down into the. Uh, the cave there, which has got the only Neanderthal symbolic mm -hmm. uh, inscription that we know about. Very lucky to get to, to be able to see that. You had to climb down a cliff to get there, but it was still a wonderful experience. <laughs> and what wow. really a wonderful experience. Yeah. Um, very awe-striking. Um, 
very, if when you look at human culture, if you look at some of that Ice Age art, the extraordinary art from hundreds of thousands of years ago, mm. then you realise that you're just part of this endless tradition when to live, people have to make things mm. and those things have meaning for others. And that, the bottom line is that it's worth doing what we do because, you know, the youngest child wants to do it. And it's great luck, great luck. However successful or not you are, it's a successful life. It's a it successful is. life to go on as a writer and to keep writing books that you hope are but still the, good. The hard is success and failure. I mean, the, for an author to experience the vagaries of the writing life, not as important. Is it toughen you up in a way, or does it make you more sensitive? The, the good, the bad, the good. How one handles all that. How well. Affects you as a person, Look, as a writer. Most important is that you learn. You learn more when things go wrong than when things go right. So I have experiences which mm. I don't believe that some of the other best of young British have had. This means I probably understand the world of books in a very different way to them, and probably a truer way. Um, but mm. also, I have discovered my strength, and I have discovered that. I've also discovered a very interesting thing that people become less creative in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of a big prize or award. There's several studies of that. So I think maybe, of course, you know, if someone wants to give me... Edge, if, you like. if you want to give me a big prize or award, yes, I'll take it, but... <laughs> but you get less energy. In but, yeah. you know, it's restless creativity does mm. quite well when it, is, when it lives for itself alone. And for you, when you learn to value yourself by people you can trust. Um, you are less at the vagaries of fashion or at the vagaries of... I, I do think, nevertheless, that it can be very hard for older artists. And if you look at the biographies of much older artists, they often don't end well. And we have to be very careful to keep reading these wonderful, slightly older artists um, who are writing Virginia as well as they ever did. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Virginia Woolf, she was who was afraid, actually, yeah. that she had gone out of fashion. Mm -hmm. yes. But there are some stunningly brilliant writers still mm -hmm. writing, mm -hmm. and we have to be careful to value mm -hmm. them. I mean, Maureen Duffy... So who, uh, who are you... So, you, yes, okay. your favourite prose authors, mm. for example, therefore. Can I say poets as well? Perhaps you say what you like. Um, but you were saying Maureen Duffy. Is oh, Maureen Duffy is a... a inspirational novelist mm -hmm. and she inspired me from when I was very young mm -hmm. because she somehow combines absolute love of the tradition with mm -hmm. a political grasp of life. Um, her poetry is stunning. I've just read her latest book, Piers Plowless, um, and it's a wonderful a verse Piers satire. Powden, yes, it is. And it also her verse translation of Sir Orfeo. Mm -hmm. well, this is, she's in her 80s and she's this sharp, you know, she's writing as well mm -hmm. as ever. Um, Faye, Faye Weldon in, inspired me. Mm -hmm. You know, she's probably the mother of the literary mother of my Monica. Um, yes, actually, yes, I can see. Yes. Uh, I mean, we're different writers, but I've always loved her, and mm -hmm. she's very astute. Mm -hmm. um, Thackeray is my greatest hero, and we read aloud to each other. Um, and we have recently reread. Banty Fair. It must have been my s probably fifth or sixth time of reading it. Mm. Absolutely loved it. And Henry Esmond, a great satirist, well, but also he's a lover of he's a lover of people, mm. but he's also a satirist. Mm. 
and he can, doesn't see the two things as mutually exclusive. Um, Doris Lessing, she was a friend. I loved her work. She encouraged me. Uh, she was somebody who didn't praise many people. She praised me. That was amazingly encouraging. Um, Wolf, of course, uh, and I reread Vonnegut. Um, I loved the I loved uh, ordinary people, mm-hmm. which I read recently, by uh, Rooney. Rooney, Rooney, I can Sally, never, Rooney. Sally, Sally Rooney. Sally Rooney. Yeah. Loved it. We read that, that aloud. Yes, I've got that. I've got that upstairs. Um, and I'm yeah. just reading, with mixed feelings, but mostly it's very gripping. I gather it's called Uplet, which would be enough to put me off it. But mm-hmm. Eleanor Oliphant is unwell. Very enjoyable mm-hmm. character, mm-hmm. big character, and also I thought, ah, not unlike, not totally unlike Monica. Because it's a sort of reaction to social media tidied up women. These are real women who are, you know, not perfect and who are funny and odd and just what we are, really. Um, So so, what about heroes heroes and heroines in fiction? Okay, Becky Sharp, of course. Love Becky Sharp. And uh, Gerda, Hans Andersen's Gerda, who I keep bringing into my work. Um, She's also in The Flood. Uh, She's in many of my books. Um... Favorite, favorite recent scene, picture films, Shoplifters, mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, Green Book, it's sort of feel good, but I still enjoyed it. Well, wonderful good. Mahershala Ali. Mm-hmm. Well, there were bits of the Christmas, bringing in Christmas, I thought might be a bit cynical, but I still loved it. It's very funny. And um, yeah, um, about, yeah, Departures, um, Japanese director. Mm-hmm. Um, and the children act. Emma Thompson was so wonderful in that. Mm-hmm. And The Wife, oh. devastating, but great. I love films with great performances. See a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, what about some favourite bands? Well, I'll say, I'll say music rather than music bands, band, I, I think. So I, I, I like Earth, Wind and Fire, actually. But, um, I, okay, Tupac, Nina Simone, Rebecca Ferguson, okay. and David Bowie. Love all of those. Um, Yes, if you could go anywhere in Oh, time. New Grub Street oh, and Grub My Antonia. Oh, read aloud recently, love them both. Mm-hmm. Um, Willa Cather. Oh, Nick reads aloud to me and I read aloud and to him. Lovely. And so that's how we did the Rooney, the Thackeray, the, you know. Uh, so that's a huge joy that we've only... Mm. We began, I think, with J- J.K. Rowling. <laughs> yeah, I got so annoyed by her sniffy reviews for The Casual Vacancy. I was furious. I thought they're being so spiteful just because she's made a lot of money and is a very nice person. So uh, we bought it and we read it aloud. And we thought, no, this is really good. And I then taught it at basketball. And it gave us the habit. So, lovely. Yeah. How lovely. Um, um, if you could go anywhere in time for a day, where would you go and why? What's oh, just now, I would like to be on a boat in Istanbul with two friends I love very much mm. in Turkey. Mm. Mine. And Bulent, that's where I'd like to be today. And do you have, do you have time? Do you read literary journals? Do you um, have time? Shall I, oh, I read the TLS a lot, because the TLS is so good. Yes. But I dropped the London Review of Books for New Scientists and never regretted it. Much prefer New Scientists. Mm, okay. Always learn something. Um, mm, interesting. Um, and do you have a motto? I thought, hard about, I thought hard about this. I thought hard about this. Things that you say to yourself to encourage yourself, or, or, or when well, things are good, also to keep yourself. Low try not to be afraid. Try not to be afraid, because um, like Monica, I think mm. I 
do tend to say what I think in meetings, but it's always hard, and my heart always beats. So I really try not to be afraid. Mm. Um, and then people do think you're not afraid, but of course I am. Um, and try to be kind. So those two things. And I would say, ours longer, vita brevis. Mm. Um, except for fear of spell check, if this is going to be written. <laughs> Oh, that was a lovely interview. Well, look, thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.